Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, February 22nd, we're studying Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. When a lawyer tries to put Jesus to the test, Jesus responds with one of his most famous accounts, a good Samaritan who shows mercy to his neighbor. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word to date, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Dan Speckard. Pastor Speckard serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, welcome back to Sharp Iron. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. As we get started this morning, let's talk a little context. Pastor Speckard, what should we know about Luke, where he's been, where he's been leading us as we prepare to look at the text we've got today? Right. So Luke chapter 10 uh, is coming. This passage we're in today is shortly uh, is coming shortly after the big turning point in the whole gospel of Luke, uh, where you have in chapter 9, uh, the transfiguration where our Lord is uh, revealed to be the Son of God, uh, identified as such by the voice from heaven. And uh, when he comes down the mountain, I think this is true in, uh, in all the, the gospels that contain the transfiguration account, but especially in Luke, you have this sense of, okay, now we are heading to Jerusalem, that whatever the uh, sort of Galilean ministry and and um, a sort of earthly preamble to our Lord's salvific work was going to be has been accomplished, uh, and now He is going to uh, accomplish the sort of the um, really the the primary purpose for which He was sent, which was to die for the sins of the world and uh, to to be raised for their justification. The um, uh, uh, passage we have today then is coming as our Lord is journeying towards Jerusalem, which, you know, our, your, your listeners probably realize in Luke, that journey imagery is a big deal. Uh, that so much of uh, what we have in Luke um, is happening as our Lord is, is dealing with various things, various encounters uh, as he's on the way, as he's on the road. Um, and then this uh, famous story he tells is a journey story, right? It's about a man who was on a journey and then and then um, fell into the hands of robbers, as we'll see. So uh, the, the Luke and journey idea is going to be very, very important. Um, and again, within the context of the, the larger gospel, we are making our way here to the thing. We're on our way to Jerusalem to fulfill uh, the purpose for which our Lord was sent. In terms of what we've seen already in, in chapter 10, you know, Jesus just sent the 72, they returned, he's, he's been speaking to them when this lawyer comes. Is, is there a connection between the sending of the 72, their return, and the lawyer coming to Jesus? Is, and, and this is maybe speculation, but is perhaps the lawyer one that heard the message of the 72 and now he wants to hear from Jesus himself? Is there a connection between the early parts of chapter 10 and this, the Good Samaritan today? I think so. I think, you know, in, in Luke, you have that phrase that begins so many passages, um, you know, and behold, uh, which, you know, sort of signifies that this, what's happening here, beginning in verse 25, is is a new episode. So there, chronologically, there might not be like this, um, uh, this direct continuity. There might have been a passage of time or, or change of location. Uh, but I think the way Luke organizes these um 
these passages in, in chapters 10 and 11 uh, really do um, there, there's a, at the very least, a thematic connection where the 72 have been sent out and returned. And as they're, uh, the ministry of our Lord, it's kind of like a tidal wave that's beginning to crest and is going to break on Jerusalem. Uh, and he's going to encounter more and more, um, I don't know if you would call this opposition, but at least sort of skepticism or curiosity, uh, regarding what exactly he's teaching and sending people out to teach in his name. Um, and I think it's, quite likely that the lawyer, um, in fact, we have a clue in this text that the lawyer has heard the teaching of Jesus before regarding the Old Testament law. And, uh, you know, that, that I don't know if you want to call this a confrontation, but this conversation uh, is probably a result of our Lord's ministry um, uh, growing in momentum as he nears Israel's holy city. Yeah, I think I think there's a definitely a thematic connection. And as you said, perhaps it's not precisely in chronological order. Sometimes Luke doesn't have it in that exact order. The, the, the connection that I was wondering about, perhaps, is when Jesus just very recently said, you know, he, he thanks God, his father, that he's hidden things from the wise and understanding and has revealed them to little children. And I, I kind of wonder if maybe the way the rest of this chapter is playing out including what we're going to look at tomorrow, is some of that, that the lawyer is one of these wise and understanding who will see it's been hidden from him, and it's going to be Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus who's going to be the, the little child who's having it revealed to her. And I guess maybe that's that was one connection that I was trying to make with the rest of chapter 10. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. And you'll, you'll definitely see that in these uh, series of passages where you have our Lord almost... Um, almost sort of being condescending to the wise, uh, you know, the ones who think that they know what righteousness looks like or uh, who think that they have a, um, you know, a rhetorical uh, point to make to the <laughs> to the Son of God. Uh, you know, Jesus is kind of putting them in their place, uh, rhetorically speaking. And, and I think that this story, the Good Samaritan, is a great example of that. I mean, Jesus takes this, this lawyer, this expert in the law, uh, and really breaks it down for him in, in the way that you would you would talk to a five-year-old, right? You'd sort of make this simple illustration to uh, to demonstrate the point. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a I think that's a great point. Probably a uh, almost certainly a connection there. In terms of the the text that we've got today, with we've been talking about the Good Samaritan. That's where we're calling it. But there's more to this text than just the illustration Jesus gives. How would you structure the account we're going to read today in in this section of Luke? I think that's uh, really important to say at the beginning is that we remember the story of the Good Samaritan, but if that story, uh, it's a little bit difficult to uh, appreciate the full meaning of it unless you consider it in the context of this conversation with a lawyer who has uh, sort of stood up and, uh, as, as Luke puts it, is putting Jesus to the test. Um, uh, you know, this, in this conversation, our Lord is having to... Um, uh, in some ways, totally transform the lawyer's thinking regarding uh, morality, right? What a moral act is uh, and what what role morality has to play in our justification, which is where the conversation with the lawyer ends up going. Um, so sort of having a sense of that, uh, that discussion, this back and forth between an expert in the law on the one hand and Jesus on the other hand, um, it's only if we bear that in mind that the point Jesus is making with the story of the Good Samaritan uh, is going to make full sense uh, because it's a pretty um, uh, a pretty clever uh, and, and profound point Jesus is making within the context of that conversation regarding um, 
morality and how it fits uh, in the um, uh, sort of the equation of salvation. So, Pastor Speckard, we, there's a few more, I think, introductory or overarching questions. Maybe let's go ahead and read the text itself and then come to some of those. We'll keep talking about those overarching questions as, we, as we've heard the text. So this is Luke 10, beginning at verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. That's our text for today. That's Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. So, Pastor Speckard, before we even get to the Good Samaritan, you come to the, the lawyer, and there's just a very, a really simple back and forth. And, and you get the, the sense that if the lawyer had stopped, you know, verses 25 to 28 could have been the whole account. It's, it's very succinct, this first back and forth. Just take us into, well, we're talking about a lawyer here. And I think you mentioned mm-hmm. an expert in the law. When we think of a lawyer, how, does, how do the lawyers fit into the, the, the scene here in terms of varying Jewish beliefs? Right. So I think that's really important to, to, to catch is that a lawyer is, is not exactly the same thing uh, as we think of when we think of lawyers today. Um, a lawyer would have had a much more, um, uh, for obvious reasons within, within the Israelite community, a much more religious uh, sort of function that the lawyer's job would be to um, seek understanding with respect to the Torah and then also the administration of the Torah. How is it that uh, the civil and ceremonial law of God work itself out uh, amongst the people of God, and particularly the civil law, as you might imagine for um, uh, for somebody called a lawyer. Um, and that person uh, would have been very, very, um, his ears would have been very open to any uh, new teaching, new preaching, any seeming deviation from what the pharisaical party uh, to, to whom the lawyer would have been um, with whom the lawyer would have been aligned, um, any deviation from the sort of legal system they had developed over the centuries during the period of, of Second Temple Judaism, um, you know, the lawyer would have wanted to understand what was being taught. And if it was contrary to what sort of he and his party had been propagating, he would have wanted to confront that. So I think that's what's happening here. Um, and then you have this great conversation, this back and forth uh, between these two Two experts in the, and you know, when we talk about the law, we're talking about the word of God here. Um, and it's very true to form as the, you know, in, in terms of the way I think we, we think of rabbis 
debating, uh, a question is asked, and then the question is answered with a question, um, and then there's an answer given, and then an answer given, and you get this cool, uh, this cool structure. And it's a little bit hard to describe without putting it down on paper. But I would I would just commend Arthur Just's commentary on this passage. Um, shares a um, he took from somebody else kind of a a breakdown of the the discussion that really lays out how Jesus takes control by responding to the initial question with a question and forcing the lawyer to kind of answer his own um, uh, his own questions in the way that Jesus would have them answered. And we'll, we'll, we'll see that as we go, but uh, that's kind of what's happening here. So with the, the lawyer's initial question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Based on what you were saying about lawyers and the, the way that they would have been attuned to new teachings that deviated from the system that they had set up, the system that they were familiar with, does it seem then that this lawyer is expecting Jesus to to fail this test? Or I mean, what is that the test? Is that he thinks Jesus has got some new teaching that doesn't belong and he wants to to make sure? Is there something more more devious than that? Anytime I see someone coming to Jesus in the gospels, putting them to the test, that usually sends up red flags that I mean, and I know you were you were careful about this earlier. Is this a confrontation, a conversation? Is this guy really an enemy? I mean, what what is this lawyer's posture towards Jesus? That's a, that's a great question. I think Luke certainly portrays it um, in a way that could be construed as confrontational because the only other time in Luke we, we see that put to the test language uh, is in his uh, account of the temptation of Jesus by the devil. Uh, you know, that language is, is um, uh, used in the third temptation. Um, so, I, you know, that, that really establishes a, um, a backdrop of... Um, I guess you I guess you really can't define it in any other way than confrontation. It's hard to know what you know, what is this lawyer up to? Um, I think that probably it's unfair to him to um, sort of say, you know, the lawyer and the devil are on one side of the line uh, and Jesus is on the other. But uh, he was quite clearly uh, uh, trying to trap Jesus in something he had heard um as you noted before, probably from his disciples who had gone out, um, he's trying to um, not just get clarification, but really push Jesus on a certain point regarding the law. Um, how is it that the law relates to eternal life? Um, you know, eternal life is the carrot for the Pharisees, right? So eternal life, if you're going to, um, if you're going to sort of maintain a system of legalism, you have to have, um, there has to be a reward built into it. And so, you know, this is very important to the whole, the whole way of living that the lawyer uh, and his party have established. Um, so he's, he's inclined not to let Jesus slide on whatever it is that he heard his disciples teaching. I like the way that you, you rephrase the, the lawyer's question, how does the law relate to eternal life? And I, I think that really, I think that's going to help us have a, a better grasp on Jesus' response and the way that he invites the lawyer to think about these things. So how does the law relate to eternal life? That's what's going on when the, the lawyer asks, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, as you said, so we've got question one. Jesus responds to it with question two. Well, you you tell me, lawyer, what's, what's written? How do you read it? Mm-hmm. And then the lawyer is going to answer question two. And Jesus is going to use that answer to answer question one. I know, like you said, it's hard to, you need to see that, but maybe that's one way to, so question one, question two, answer two, answer one. Take us into that middle interaction, Jesus' question about the lawyer, what do you read, and then the way the lawyer answers it. 
Right. So I, you, you just have to love the way Jesus, you know, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Um, the way you phrased it uh, was, was exactly right. Sort of turning the tables. You're the lawyer, right? You you tell me, you know, um, but it allows our Lord to get to the heart of what he knows the lawyer is, is asking. Um, and then what's interesting is that the lawyer answers in a way that uh, to Christian ears is going to sound exactly right. Um, in fact, this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Um, that's right out of, um, uh, and then, and then your neighbor is yourself. Uh, that's right out of uh, Deuteronomy where you have, you know, very famously what they call the great Shema, the great commandment uh, given to the uh, Israelites uh, uh, through Moses there. Um, and then that that addition regarding the neighbor, uh, which is kind of taken from Leviticus, that's how Jesus himself sums up the law uh, in Matthew and Matthew and Mark. And so it's possible that the lawyer has heard Jesus sum up the entire Old Testament in this way. And he's kind of repeating back to Jesus uh, what um, what Jesus has himself taught. Um, but it, what you see our Lord doing is framing the whole conversation, um, t- sort of taking the, the onus off of, I mean, there's a million different things you might do to inherit eternal life. Jesus knows that the lawyer is concerned with the role of the law in that process. And Jesus is going to get right to the heart of it. Um, and then as is so, uh, you know, it's just so typical of this rabbinic type of debate. Um, the lawyer's answer uh, becomes almost Jesus's answer to the first question. You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Um, now that answer is totally unsatisfactory to the ears of the lawyer. Uh, the lawyer, the lawyer knows that there has to be more to it than that. But you can see already Jesus has totally turned the tables on the lawyer. No longer is the lawyer putting him to the test. But now Jesus is almost immediately, you tell me what the law says. Okay, now go and do it. It's the lawyer who is being suddenly kind of put under the microscope. Are you keeping the law or not? If you are, why are you worried about this? Uh, do it and you will live. Yeah, well, and I think the way that Luke continues the narrative in verse 29 is that the the lawyer is desiring to justify himself, which I think maybe gives a little more insight into what is going on with the lawyer. What's the the test here? And as you say, you know, it's it's maybe not just a it wasn't it's not only, hey, he's heard Jesus say these things publicly and he wants to know about the public teaching, but maybe there's even some there's some inward conflict within the lawyer that, that he knows, hey, I haven't kept this law. Jesus has put me on the spot here. If if he had been doing it perfectly, the answer that Jesus gave in verse 28, that could be the end of the conversation. But but he's not done yet. He wants to justify himself, which I, I mean, that that sounds really it's scriptural language, but it's it's the way that Paul talks a lot. I mean, you know, you don't you don't hear a ton of I would say say this carefully because Jesus does teach justification by grace through faith, but that language of justification doesn't often show up in the Gospels. It shows up very particularly in Paul as he you know illuminates what's in the Gospels. To hear that language here, the justification language here, I think really shines a pretty big light on what's happening and what Jesus is up to as he goes back and forth with the lawyer. I totally agree. And I think you see here, you know, uh, throughout Luke's gospel, um, 
your listeners might know that that Luke is the evangelist associated with St. Paul, uh, that, you know, Matthew and John are disciples of our Lord. Uh, Mark is sort of associated with St. Peter and Luke associated with St. Paul. Paul never writes a gospel for obvious reasons, uh, but Luke is kind of um, in various places giving us a little bit of the Pauline perspective, I think it's fair to say, on the ministry of Jesus. And this is a, a, a really great example of that, where that language of justification creeps in, because you you might just assume that you're talking about the lawyer's just trying to justify his initial question, um, you know, that he just wants to not look like a fool uh, in front of this other rabbi. But as you get into the story, it's clear that it's so much more than that. It kind of reminds us, I think, of our Lord's interaction with the rich young man, where there's this internal desire to stand justified before God, uh, which, as you noted, I mean, that's that's the uh, sort of the, the the crux of our Lord's uh, ministry and mission uh, is to justify sinners, but he rarely talks about it that way. Um, that language we get from elsewhere in the New Testament, particularly Paul, and the way that you have our Lord um, using the lawyer's question to bring the idea of salvation into conversation with the idea of the law or morality, um, we can't help but see this in terms of you know, Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession, justification. What is it that allows us to stand before our Creator justified, having been made righteous? Uh, that's really what we're what we're getting at here. Well, and I think that, that that's what we're getting at here is one of the reasons maybe sometimes this, this text causes us a bit of trouble because you know, Jesus has had the question, what do I do? He says, what's written? Here's what you do. And he says, okay, go do it and you'll live. By the end of it, it's going to be, you go and do likewise. And so there's there's a bit of a challenge for us as we, okay, well, how is how does this text support and uphold that teaching of justification by grace through faith that we confess is the, the article upon which the church stands or falls? This is the central teaching of the church. So that's going to be one of the challenges, I think. And I think it, it will become clear as we go through what Jesus gives. Let's talk, before we get too far down that rabbit hole, let, let's talk about the the lawyer's question, desiring to justify himself. Who is my neighbor? I mean, just given kind of some of the things we've said about the lawyer and what his expectations are, when he asked this, who is my neighbor question, what what might he be thinking is going to be the appropriate response? I, I get the sense that Jesus' answer surprises him. What what may be going through the lawyer's mind when he asks this, who is my neighbor? What's maybe he's expecting Jesus to answer? Yeah, well, I think what the lawyer's trying to do, I mean, this is this is legalism through and through, where you're going to try to uh, depict the law in such a way that you yourself can follow it. And the only way that's possible is if you sort of uh, run the law through a, a series of twists and, and um, transformations that gives you a chance at keeping it, which means, so like, for instance, the, the great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, <laughs> the lawyer knows, as we all know, that it's not possible for us as sinners to love everyone uh, in the way that we love ourselves. We we are going to fall short of that. So what we need to do is begin excluding people. Uh, we need to figure out a way to reduce that commandment to something that we might actually have a chance uh, at keeping. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's, again, just typical legalistic, uh, pharisaical, um, let's, let's cut out and, and you can imagine the type of people the lawyer would cut out. First of all, cut out the Gentiles, uh, cut out uh, the unclean, cut out the impure, uh, cut out the, um, you know, the, the socially, um, you know, uh, downtrodden, the ones that don't rise to the level of being loved. Um, 
if you if you cut out everybody who it would be difficult to love, um, then maybe you could love your neighbor as yourself technically. Um, and that's what the lawyer wants to do. He wants to be able to keep the law according to a series of technicalities. Um, and Jesus is going to just is just going to flip that whole concept on its head. Um, and, and really, um, you don't want to give away the ending here. But what our what our Lord is establishing is that you can't love in the way that you've been commanded to love, if you would inherit eternal life, your only hope is to be loved uh, by God, Mm. uh, to be loved in a way that you yourself have not loved. And that's, again, we're sort of, um, you know, giving away the ending here, but but that's the beauty of it. Uh, Our Lord is trying to rip that legalism out of the mind of the lawyer and replace it with the gospel. Uh, replace it with pure grace. Uh, you can't love God or your neighbor enough to inherit eternal life, but good news, God loves you. Um, and that's sort of the where, where we're going with this. Yeah, that, that is, that's a beautiful way that, that Jesus does this with the lawyer. And it, it strikes me, you know, when you were saying the question, who is my neighbor, is, is a, an attempt to find some loophole, some, if I can exclude a few neighbors that I don't have to love, then I've got a better shot at loving the ones that I should love. It, it strikes me that he he asks that loophole question about the second table of the law, about the neighbor, rather than the first table of the law. He doesn't try to find a loophole in the first. And and, inter- and I don't know if you mentioned this, the way the lawyer even speaks in the, the first table of the law, the love of the Lord your God, your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. I don't. I don't think the mind language is in Deuteronomy. So it's almost like he's expanded that one, but now he's trying to to limit the second part. I'm not sure if there's if there's more to it, but I find that interesting. It is. It's very interesting, and it's hard to know. I mean, uh, the lawyer having included all your mind, and Luke Luke made sure uh, to include that in his response. Um, you know, if you're a careful reader of Scripture, as you noted, Pastor Apple, that's not in, in Deuteronomy, um, the mind portion. Um, but then, you know, our Lord says you have answered correctly. So either Jesus just is going to let that slide, or maybe Je- maybe Jesus does see in that, um, you know, the 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 idea um, of of sort of legalizing the Torah, uh, finding these loopholes and technicalities. I think we would consider that to be an enterprise of the mind. And so maybe Jesus has already picked up on, uh, you know, okay, it's clear. This is where the lawyer is coming from. Uh, and then the lawyer reveals himself to be precisely that when he says, and who is my neighbor? Why he goes on the second table, I don't know. Maybe the first table is kind of nebulous. I mean, to, to love the Lord your God um, is so often going to be um, kind of this internal thing that's hard to test, I suppose. But the love of neighbor is visibly manifest. I mean, you can tell when somebody loves the people around him. uh, And that's where the lawyer probably knows he's exposed. And that's why the lawyer is trying to um, uh, trying to you know, twist the law a little bit here so that he can follow it. Right. And, and as, as Jesus exposes that he is going to draw him back into that first table to, and and then, as you said, into the, the true fear, love, and trust in God above all things, which is to receive that love from God first and foremost to be saved by him. And we're going to pick up more of that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on KFUO. We're talking Luke chapter 10 with Pastor Dan Speckard. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Thank you. 
Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Tuesday, February 22nd. We're studying Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37 with Pastor Dan Speckard. He serves at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana. Pastor Speckard, prior to the break, we looked at this text up to the second part of the conversation, the second back and forth between the lawyer and Jesus. The lawyer is trying to justify himself. He's asked a question. Jesus is going to answer with a, a story that ends with a question, and then the lawyer's going to answer that second question, and that's going to be the answer to the, the question, the neighbor question. So again, we've got a similar structure here in the second half of our text as we did in the first. But before we look at Jesus' extended answer here, it, it just says in verse 30, Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We often call this text the parable of the Good Samaritan. But you pointed out to me in, in previous conversation that Jesus doesn't actually say this is a parable, and St. Luke doesn't actually say this is a parable. What what difference does that make, or why might that make a difference, the type of literature we're, we're reading here? Yeah, I think it's important to notice that you know very often the gospel writer will will give us a, a pretty obvious sort of, uh, they'll say, and he told them this parable. And then you know that what you're about to hear needs to be interpreted as a parable. And, you know, if you've, if you've spent time in the Gospels, I think that um, uh, one of the things we work really hard with, uh, with Christians to understand is that the parables, they're told with a specific point and purpose, right? The parables uh, reveal something about the coming of the messianic kingdom, uh, and they reveal it in a way that very often you can't you can't fully understand it until after our Lord has fulfilled his ministry with the cross and the empty tomb. And then you can look back on the parable and you can see the cross there almost, or see the empty tomb um, and see the point our Lord was making in kind of that cryptic uh, parable way. Um, and we're, we're really careful when we teach confirmation students. And, and um, I remember this was a huge deal at the seminary when we, when we had our hermeneutics classes and our, our you know, um, when you're preaching on the parables, you don't, don't treat them like other types of stories. Don't try to moralize them. Don't try to, um, uh, you know, make them anything other than what they are images of the cross. Now, this isn't identified as a parable. Um, and I think it's important then that we can, we can go into it with maybe a little bit more interpretive flexibility. Um, obviously, in every page of the scriptures, we're going to be looking for the cross, and well, we should. But it might not be the type of story where you can kind of, in retrospect, see that Jesus was talking about his eventual uh, cruciform death uh, for the salvation of sinners. Uh, but maybe maybe this can be interpreted with a little bit more of a, a moral perspective, as our Lord is using it as an illustration uh, to answer a question regarding morality. And that might seem like a little thing, but if you read, if you read commentaries on the Gospel of Luke, um, uh, sometimes you'll, you'll have a lot of commentators will, will take the, this story totally out of the context of the conversation regarding the law and sort of moralize it in a way that doesn't actually tell us anything about salvation. But a lot of commentators, I think, will, with good intentions, try to uh, 
uh, interpret it Christologically, um, try to interpret it through the lens of the cross. Um, but maybe maybe they're forcing that that cross-centered parable style interpretation onto it. And so I think we can um, we can maybe try to cut cut a middle line here um, and and recognize that this isn't. This isn't identified as a parable, uh, but given the, the context of the conversation, it absolutely has to do with salvation. Does that make sense? I think so. I mean, so it's, it's not a parable in the sense that, like, when I think of parables, I'm thinking ones that start with something like, the kingdom of God is like, or the kingdom of heaven is like. And there's usually, you know, a main character who is the Lord, or, you know, the Father or Jesus, and, and he does something that relates to the way the kingdom of God works. This one maybe isn't as as clear cut in that nature, and Jesus doesn't identify it as a parable. I suppose it's even possible that this is something that actually happened. Like you know, like we we think of it as an illustration, but it it is possible that this is something that really happened. Jesus is relating something that that he knows about, or, or maybe other people know about. It actually happened, and he says this illustrates what I'm talking about, such that it, yeah. it does have a a moralistic, that's the word you've been using, a moralistic application, but there's more going on because we need to be able to connect that to, well, what does that have to do with the relationship between moralism or, or the law and salvation? Is that kind of kind of what you're getting at? I think that's exactly right. And, and I would, um, uh, I, I love that you brought up that whether or not this actually happened, um, there was a footnote in a commentary I read that, that pointed out the way Jesus tells this story, whether or not this exact thing happened. He tells it in a way that clearly this type of thing does happen in the context of, of you know, first century uh, Judaistic culture, right? This is, this was a real life happening uh, in the, in the hearts and the eyes and the minds of our Lord's hearers. Um, and, and so again, not exactly a parable, um, but certainly, um, certainly something that, um, uh, as we've noted, is going to be very applicable in terms of how we understand um, who our neighbor is and how, how you know, what, what love is um, in terms of the conversation the lawyer and Jesus were having before. So with that that set out, that this is not a, a parable in the strict sense, it's more of an, an illustration, a telling of something that either did happen or it was very something that they could imagine happened, an illustration, maybe that's the best way we should talk about it. Before we dig into to some of the details of, of the illustration that Jesus gives, what, what then is the overarching point with all that in mind? What What's going on? What's Jesus up to in this illustration of the Good Samaritan? Yeah, I think the overarching point that Jesus is making is that um, the law cannot be legalized uh, in such a way that you can keep it love, uh, right? And that's what the law boils down to. Love God, love your neighbor. Uh, love is never going to be kept via technicality. Uh, love is going to be kept via self-sacrifice, and it is kept in such a way that um, uh, the the giver uh, puts himself in the place of the receiver, um, in a way that is truly divine. I mean, this this is what uh, divine love looks like. Um, somebody who has nothing to gain is going to put his neck on the line in order to save somebody who has really nothing left to lose. Um, Jesus is, is sort of illustrating love here 
Um, and he's doing it in a way, uh, and then you'll see in the, the final question that he asked the lawyer um, and the way the lawyer answers, uh, he's doing it in a way that demonstrates the love we're discussing here, the perfect love. Um, I already called it divine, which gives it away. Uh, it doesn't come from within us. It's not something that we show God in order to save ourselves. It's something that God shows us, and thus we are saved. And those are really the two things. I think this whole this whole passage helps us to understand, first of all, what, you know, what is a moral act? What does love look like? Um, it's not a technicality. It's sacrificial and it's sincere. Uh, and then also, what is the role of our showing love? Is it something we do to earn salvation? Or is it something that having been loved, we now have an opportunity to do because we're already saved? Christians know the answer to these questions, but this is this is one of the passages that we we base our understanding of love upon. The way Jesus takes that technical lawyer speak and really uh, crumples it up and and replaces it with the gospel. Uh, that that I think is the overarching idea here. Uh, in this passage. Uh, that's a beautiful explanation, Pastor Speckard. And I, I think as we go through the text, then we're going to see the way that Jesus really hammers that home. So, all right. So we're in verse 30 and following the, the illustration of the Good Samaritan. Jesus begins to tell this story and it starts with a man. Uh, I'm assuming this, this man who ends up robbed and beaten and left for half dead, that he, we should think of him as a Jew in all likelihood, given the way that the, the parable progresses. But let's just, I mean, set, set this scene for us. So you, you said that if this didn't happen, it's something that the people would very easily imagine happening. Just set the scene in terms of how it, it starts with this man making the trip. He ends up waylaid by, by robbers. Yeah, and it's um, I always picture if your if your listeners have seen Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, uh, I don't know if you've seen that Pastor have, Apple. I have. But so there's a scene where where this um, and I forget what he what he is, but he's he's a businessman of some sort who's hired uh, Butch and 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 the Sundance Kid to protect him, and as they're going, and I, gosh, I wish I could remember the details better, but they're going somewhere and they don't have any money yet. And so Butch and Sundance are all, they're all defensive. They're checking behind every bush for potential robbers. And the guy goes, what are you doing? Nobody's going to attack us now. We don't have any money. Um, <laughs> it's on the way back that we have to be worried. And sure enough, they wind up attacked. Um, it's a very similar thing here. They're, you know, from Jerusalem to Jericho, he's been in Jerusalem. We don't know who this man is. We don't know what the nature of his uh, business was there. But uh, like I said, this this idea that having come from Jerusalem, which just like in any society, that the, the capital city is going to be the center of wealth, the center of commerce. Uh, and now you're going back into the uh, sort of the, the, the region surrounding. Um, you're probably bringing wealth from the center out with you. And, uh, you know, I think that the our Lord's initial hearers would have recognized, okay, that's that's potentially a dangerous journey. And sure enough, on his way to Jericho from Jerusalem, uh, he's he's set upon by robbers. And, you know, it's just kind of like, um, you know, we sometimes talk about, you know, bad neighborhoods. Uh, it's that idea. There are certain places that if you go in a certain place at a certain time, something bad might happen might happen. And, and sure enough, it did. So that's the situation. The man has been making this journey. He's been stripped, beaten, robbed, left for half dead. And now here comes more more people journeying. And you mentioned this at the very beginning, that, that Jesus is in the middle of this journey to Jerusalem. He tells a story about journeying. How does that, that theme of travel, journey, 
continue? And, and maybe what are some of the, the, the parts of the text that point us to some of the specifics you've been talking about with the way that these now three men, they're going to journey either past or toward this man? Well, I think it, what it does is it expands the illustration uh, to really capture uh, the nature of, uh, not to not to be over overstating the case, but it captures the nature of life itself, that, that this is a cliche, but life is somewhat of a journey. All these questions about moral acts and when should I keep the law and how should I keep it, all of that presupposes that um, I'm going from point A to point B. Um, as a religious person, we have a, the lawyer has a sense of what happens when he gets to the, the end of the journey, right? We, we know what's going to happen when we die. Thanks be to God. But what about between now and then, what do I need to do to make sure I'm, I'm continuing to uh, be righteous such that I don't lose the reward I hope to inherit when I get to the end of the journey? Um, you know, that that's not a bad way of summing up, uh, you know, all of our sort of all of our doings. We're, we're not, it's not given to us to just sort of sit in a room uh, with the lights out and the, the blinds drawn uh, until God calls us home to heaven, right? The nature of life is that you kind of have to go out onto the road. And while you're on the road, that's when these moral quandaries are going to come up. Uh, and that's precisely what you see with the, the priest and the Levite uh, and the Samaritan. They encounter somewhat of a moral quandary in the way that all of us do. The second you step out your door, things get complicated. And, you know, I, I think that's that's really the, the power of this illustration uh, is that it, it, you know, it captures the nature of, uh, of, of our existence uh, in this life, even as it also captures uh, the sort of the, the um, culmination of our Lord's ministry in his own journey towards the cross. When you talk about this life gets complicated, these decisions get complicated for the, for the first two men, the priest and the Levite, what what's so complicated for them? Here's a guy who's lying there, hurt, half dead. Why why is this a complicated thing for them? What's going on in their maybe legalistic way of thinking, the way that the lawyers thinking? What what's making this so complicated? Why not just stop and help? Yeah, what they're struggling with is this: the relationship between the overarching moral law of God. What is love? Uh, what are these great commands regarding love? Love the Lord your God, love your neighbor. Um, how do those things relate to the ceremonial and the civic law that God had given to, to his people that would have restricted uh, potentially the ability of the priest and the Levite to interact with a man who had become impure? And we, we don't fully know, um, you know, why exactly is he impure here? Well, you know, he, he seems like he's probably a Jew. But having been left half dead, he's likely he's bloody, um, and you know the we, maybe he's he's so beaten that he appears to be totally dead uh, from their vantage point. And and the way Jesus tells the story, he's careful to note that the priest and the Levite, you know, don't even don't even risk getting very close to the man, um, so they don't know his full condition. But he looks like he might have become impure as religious leaders in the. Uh, community of, of faith there, the priest and the Levite did have a responsibility to maintain uh, a certain level of purity according to the ceremonial law going back and as we find it in Leviticus. Um, they have to remain pure so that they can perform the, uh, the sacrifices uh, and the prayers uh, that um, it's their responsibility to perform on behalf of the people. Um, that's all well and good. 
And the tension then in this story, in this text, is, well, what happens when the ceremonial law comes into conflict with the moral law of love? Um, and, 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 you know, as Christians, we recognize um, it's, it's really easy for us to say, well, of course, love your neighbor ought to trump, um, you know, any, any sort of purity restriction that a priest or a Levite was having to deal with. Um, but I do think when, our, when Jesus told this story, not just for the lawyer, but for any Jew, uh, this would have been, I mean, this is a really tough thing. Uh, there's a, a very real tension here. Um, are we righteous because we keep the ceremonial law of God to the T, even if it means turning our back on a person in need? Or is the nature of righteousness more in line with sort of the, the common sense, love your neighbor, um, uh, you know, help the person who's who's been beaten up and left in a ditch? Um that, that's the tension our Lord is, is sort of building into this story. And the transformative thing about his ministry is that he answered once and for all um, the ceremonial law and the civil law that the, the Israelites might have been um, uh, sort of overly concerned with, particularly at the time of the Pharisees when they've, they've developed this whole legal system around it. Um, that is being fulfilled and uh, uh, sort of, uh, assumed into the ministry of Christ, but the moral law that is eternal, and it is the moral law in the end that ought to win out, uh, which is why the Samaritan behaves righteously, where the priest and the, and the Levite don't. Does that does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think so. I, I've I've been coming as I've been reflecting on this account. I, I've come back to something that uh, Doctor Adam Kuntz told me. I think we were talking about Jesus touching the leper earlier in Luke. And he made the point, and I thought this was, was well made, that in touching the leper, Jesus isn't breaking the law per se. It, it wasn't illegal for him to touch a leper. There were consequences to it, but there, he's not breaking the law per se. He's What he's doing there is he's doing something that the law simply just had had no power to do the law when it came to the lepers you know it, it could tell you how to diagnose things and how to what to look at to see if if you had leprosy and if you didn't have leprosy anymore and it could give you all of these sort of diagnostic tools but there was nothing in the law given to heal leprosy and, and so oh, jesus boy. in in touching the leper was doing something that the law was powerless to do but he could do as the as the lord of, of life and I wonder if, if something similar is is happening here with the priest and the Levite in their in their question and the way that they're approaching it, thinking at it from this very legalistic point of view. The you know what to do with this man, the law doesn't necessarily answer it, at least in the the ceremonial and civil sense. Right. Whereas when Jesus then presents the Samaritan. Here's, here's one who is doing that thing that the law was powerless to do. And, and in that sense, and I think that maybe this is where you're going with what you've kind of said already, that the Samaritan is then providing this picture of who Jesus is and giving this divine love that goes above and beyond what the law, the law couldn't do it. But, but Jesus, as God in our flesh, he can do it. Does that make right. sense? And does that add to what, what you were saying, hopefully? Absolutely. I think, I think that's a, a 
perfect description of, of what's happening here and what happens generally with people. I mean, the law of God is good, right, and salutary. And that's true of the of the ceremonial and the civic law uh, going back into the, the Old Testament. Um, the challenge is that we as sinners are so, we get so tangled up in it. Uh, and it's not the fault of the law. It's the fault of our own inability to, uh, to you know, live according to it. Um, we simply... Uh, we simply cannot uh, save ourselves or live righteously according to the law. And, and I just can't stress this enough. That's not a failing of the law. That's a failing of us. That's, that's because we're sinners. Um, but the outsider, right? Jesus, uh, as the son of God, as you noted, uh, can come and do things that other beings can't. Uh, the son of God, who is able to perfectly fulfill the law, doesn't get tangled up by it, but rather is able to live this um, this life of perfect love. And he shows us what that looks like. Um, and I think the Samaritan in this story, um, obviously the Samaritan isn't the son of God here. The Samaritan um, isn't portrayed as divine, but he is an outsider. He's not tangled up by the uh, sort of the purity codes of the, uh, of the Torah in the way that a Levite and a priest would have been. Uh, he's not, he's not a clergy person. He's, uh, he's just this guy. And if you know anything about Samaritans, he's very much an outsider in the, the culture uh, with which we're dealing. Uh, but that outsider identity allows him to just do the obvious thing. A guy is dying in a ditch. I'm going to help him. We know that's what love looks like. Everybody knows that's what love looks like. But it's only when you can be sort of untangled from um, the way our sin ties the law and knots. Uh, it's only when you can get outside of that that the obvious thing becomes possible. And Jesus is the sort of the archetype of it. I mean, Jesus is the one who is able to do what others can't, as you noted. So with this, tell us more about the Samaritan and some of the things that he does that show this this type of love. I mean, you were talking earlier, love is self-sacrifice. The the giver puts the the self in the place of the receiver. The one who's got nothing to gain goes and, and gives to something who's got nothing to give. How do we see that with what the Samaritan does? Yeah, I, I think sort of from the story, we know that it's possible to pass by this guy on the uh, on the road. Uh, the Levite and the priest have demonstrated that, and he's not going to be able to do anything about it. And probably if you just leave him to die in the ditch, nobody's ever going to know, right? He just got set upon by robbers and he died in the ditch, and your presence there doesn't really factor in. So there's no, there's no um, uh, risk in just continuing on your way and forgetting that that guy ever existed. The second that you notice the guy and decide to help him, uh, you have assumed some risk. The obvious thing from the story is that you're going to have to take your time and your energy and your money in order to help this guy uh, and give him a chance at life. But something that a commentary shared, and I can't remember where I read this, but I thought it, it really adds a layer to this. Um, the Samaritan in expending time and energy and money to help this guy, he is putting himself in a position of potentially being blamed. Uh, because the thing is, the guy's beset upon by robbers. Eventually, his family is going to want to know who did this to him. And the number one suspect is going to be the guy who was there, who was acting like he sort of had to make up, um, you know, make amends with the victim. Um, he could quite quite easily be looked upon with suspicion and for all of his trouble uh you know no good deed goes unpunished he might he might find himself um uh you know being being uh, considered as as you know 
being judged as somebody who might have actually committed the crime in the first place. That's the risk the Samaritan's taking on, and he's doing it as a Samaritan who's already going to be viewed with suspicion uh, by the Jewish community. Um, it would have been much safer for this Samaritan just to close his eyes, plug his ears, and pretend he never saw it. Um, we've all seen, you know, it's in so many movies and TV shows. You, you walk into a room and something's happening and you just want to pretend you were never there. So you back out and you're just going to keep your mouth shut. The Samaritan could have done that, uh, but he didn't. He put himself on the line in order to give this dying man life, uh, which is, of course, so it just sounds like Christ. That's right. Yeah, it's, it certainly does. Now, with with that, there's the account that takes us through 35. Jesus then turns the question back to the lawyer. He he phrases it slightly differently. You know, the lawyer said, who's my neighbor? Jesus says, which of these proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The lawyer answers. Jesus says, "You go and do likewise." Pastor Specker, we got about three minutes here to to wrap this up. How does how does this account of the Good Samaritan? What does Jesus do with it for the lawyer? What's he calling the lawyer to to receive in it? And then how does that give us good news as Christians? Yeah, I think to to see how our Lord twists the question at the end uh, is really the key to the whole thing. The the lawyer originally asked, "And who is my neighbor?" Uh, Jesus responds by asking, after this long story, um, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? So the lawyer is asking from the perspective of what do I have to do? Who is my neighbor? Who do I have to serve? Um, Jesus responds by asking, who serves? Um, and that might not seem like a big deal, but it really captures the whole the whole conversation, the lawyer is so concerned with earning his righteousness that he would inherit an eternal life. What do I have to do to justify myself? And Jesus is twisting that to say, look and see what others are doing. And the specific other, the Samaritan, uh, of course, it, it's himself, it's Christ. What is God doing to serve you? That is the uh, the means through which you will receive inherit, uh, eternal life. That is what will finally justify you. You're not the guy who has a chance to help. You're the guy dying in a ditch in your sin, totally tangled up in the law, not having any idea how to live. And you're the guy who's going to receive life uh, from this outsider who comes and fulfills the perfect law of love for your sake. And that's, you know, for the Christian, that's that's all of us. That's we we're the ones dying in the ditch. The question isn't how can I save myself? The question is, what is God going to do to save me? And he sends our Lord, the Samaritan. You know, Jesus wasn't a Samaritan, but in the story, the good Samaritan who's going to put himself on the line and pay what is owed for me to be healed, for my sins to be forgiven, and for my life to be restored. And in that sense, the story captures uh, the gospel. This is what Jesus came to be and came to do. Pastor Dan Speckard is pastor at St. Peter Lutheran Church and School in North Judson, Indiana, helping us today with Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Pastor Speckard, thanks for being our guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. If you have any questions about Luke chapter 10 or any of the gospel according to St. Luke, please send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or use the open mic feature on the app to send a message to us. We always love to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.